0: Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I asked my wife how I sounded when she got down from the choir, and she said, you sound like a bear. And uh, so I said, I'll growl gently at them this morning. Uh, So as we come this morning, we're going to be studying there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and we're going to be studying the worst sinner of them all. We are going to be seeing Saul of Tarsus, this man named Paul the Apostle, give his personal testimony of what God has done within his life. As we studied last week, we saw that Paul was exhorting young Pastor Timothy to hold fast to the true gospel with God's true, in God's true church so that those who were truly converted would love God and love others with a, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Indeed as he closed he pointed out that the law of God was good because it pointed out it pointed out sinful man's need for God's holy and just salvation. This church had been infiltrated from inside by high-sounding intellectuals, intellectuals that sought to draw away and make disciples of themselves and not of Jesus Christ. They had replaced the glorious gospel of God that delivers men from the penalty and power of sin through the work of Jesus Christ with a message of self-esteem and self-help. And we said that is very apt and very fitting for our own day. Because as we look around at TV, we can see many pastors there on the big screens within our homes that are ministers of nothing other than self-help and self-esteem salvation. And we need to be on guard for that. He closed by saying that there are 14 types of people, there are 14 different types of people who commit these transgressions listed in verses 9 and 10. Indeed, he says, therefore, that they are lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching says there are 14 types of people, but what is he really saying? There's only one type of people. There are sinners who need a Savior. And that's his point. He's saying no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what the background is, no matter what the problem is, listen, the ultimate help and the ultimate hope for each and every person in this world is what? Not self-help and self-esteem. It is the Savior named Jesus Christ coming and dealing with your sins. Indeed, the mention of the glorious gospel of the blessed God moved Paul to share his own personal testimony. He was exhibit A to prove that the gospel of the grace of God really works within the life of the sinner. When you read Paul's testimony, you begin to grasp the wonder of God's amazing grace and His glorious saving power. As we read these verses this morning, we can almost hear Paul's voice crack with emotion, it is almost like it is there before his cracking and breaking down, strained with emotion as he remembers the great and glorious salvation God has wrought within his life. Indeed, God had delivered him from his sin. He had entrusted to him the gospel message of salvation, and now he had equipped him for service. As we live our lives day by day, we ought to regularly rehearse and remind ourselves of our great and grievous sins against God. And even greater than that, we ought to remind ourselves regularly of God's great and glorious gospel. So this morning, as we take our Bibles, let's turn to the scripture and let's remind ourselves this morning of God's great and glorious work of redemption as we look at the worst sinner of them all here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy. Let's stand in honor of the reading of this, God's holy and inspired word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, God's holy word reads as follows. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honored. And glory forever and ever. Amen. It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world. To save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost of all. Father. May that be our heartfelt conviction this morning. That Father we would truly trust. And accept the statement. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And Father, that upon reading your scriptures and and Father, reflecting on our lives, we might see our sin and understand our position before before you. And understand that because of our guilt, there is separation. But because of your grace, there is now forgiveness, redemption. And Father, the ability for sinners to be saints. Lord, may we come today to your scripture and see our sin so that we might then see your Savior and surrender all to him. Lord, may you change us and challenge us by your word that you have inspired in this passage. And Father, we pray now, as always, that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here within this passage, we see that we should be people who regularly rehearse and remind ourselves of God's glorious grace and manifold mercy in redeeming us from our sins to serve and share in his eternal kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, listen, I regularly remind myself of exactly who I was and what I was like. on a a daily basis, before I met Jesus Christ, so that then, as I live out my life, I might be mindful to see God's great salvation being played out in the midst of every day of my life. Indeed, we should, as Christians, regularly rehearse and remind ourselves of God's glorious grace, of His manifold mercy, of His work of redemption for us to save us from our sins so that we might serve and share within his kingdom and first at first within this passage we see in verses 12 through 14 the prodigal past of the servant of god the prodigal past of the servant of god now paul begins verse 12 by saying i thank christ jesus our lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into his service. He says, listen, I thank God for everything I have because God has strengthened me. He has made me able. He has appointed me to a service. And here is the work that he has given me to do. Indeed, Paul begins this great te- testimony by saying that his position is because of God's gracious work, not because of his accolades or acceptance through his works. The position that God had called, gifted, and strengthened Paul for was the position of service. Now, it is not primarily a position of leadership, a position of honor, but yes, there is honor within the service and there is leadership within the responsibilities he has in the church. But Paul was gripped by the fact that God would count him faithful for the work of service within his kingdom. Paul's heartfelt thanks just oozes out of all of his pores as he is overwhelmed and overcome with the fact that Christ loved him and set him apart so that he might be a service worker within his kingdom. I'd rather be a scrubber of a toilet in God's house than working in any fine establishment anywhere in the world. Isn't that what we sing when we say, Better is one day. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's the heartfelt emotion that overwhelms Paul. He is so thankful for what God has done, how he has done it within his life of his redemption, of the forgiveness of his sins. He can't contain it. And the gospel of his redemption, the service within the kingdom of his Lord, has indeed gripped his soul. On what basis has Paul received this appointment? That's a good question. When we read about appointments, don't we usually take the person who has been appointed and then we'll read their resume and we'll go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Yeah, that, okay, I see where this person is marked out. This man or woman is qualified for the position of service to which they've been appointed. They are going to do a good job and complete the task to which they have been called unless they're in government work. Then it's good luck. Maybe they were qualified or maybe not. As we come today, Paul says, listen, you want my qualifications? It's not based on me. Here's my qualifications. He says, listen, you want to know who I am? Even though I was formerly a blasphemer or persecutor and a violent aggressor. That's who I am. So if you think this commendation, if you think this appointment has come because I'm a good person, because I've kept myself pure, because I am so much holier than everybody else, listen, forget what you thought, because I want you to know up front, I wasn't fit for the appointment Christ called me to. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. Indeed, he understood who he was and what he had been through. I want you just to imagine for a moment. Imagine if a pastor search committee called this young man named Paul before them. Said, Paul, tell me, what qualifies you to be an apostle? What qualifies you to be the pastor of a church? Well, if we went back and looked at who you were and what you were about and where you were from, what would it be that marks you out, Paul? I'm a blasphemer, I'm a persecutor, and a violent man. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Anybody else got any questions on the Tim, any questions? Nope? Okay, uh, listen, we'll call you, don't call us. Isn't that how it go? But Paul is honest about who he is because he's laid out a list and he knows the temptation is going to be for those who hear the list to say, well, look, he's pointing the finger at us. When Paul is actually saying, listen, all of the lists that I just laid out in verses 9 and 10, I am it. I'm the person who needed the glorious gospel. And so Paul is making sure that the people understand that he has a prodigal past. Indeed, as Saul of Tarsus, he describes himself very aptly in Acts chapter 26. If you want to turn there quickly with me. Acts chapter 26 verses 9 through 11. Here's how Paul describes himself when he is giving a defense of himself before King Agrippa. He says this in verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Hey, hey, me, Paul. Yes, the one... Who came and preached the gospel among you? Yes, the one who saw the church started there in your midst, Ephesus. Yes, Paul, I was a blasphemer. Not only was I a blasphemer, I tried to force others to blaspheme. And listen, it wasn't just a passing fad in my life. I mean, this wasn't weekend work I did just to get away and to have fun. This was actually the purpose and the passion of my life. I pursued them even to foreign cities. So that I might persecute them. The focus of his existence was a denial and extermination of all their crazy claims concerning this one named Jesus Christ. He, He deeply, deeply believed that Jesus Christ was a false prophet. He was committed to utterly destroying the work of the Christian faith. That's who Paul was. He was a blasphemer. But his blaspheming led to persecution for the people. If you look back a couple chapters in Acts 22, there's another summation given of his testimony. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest, and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Everything within us that revolts and reviles and rejects those images of the Nazi concentration camps of World War II Germany, ought to rise up within us when we read this description of Paul. He was the jailer. He was the one working torturous devices upon upon these Christians in this early church. That's who he is. That's what he's about. Here here is what he is. He's not some Sunday school kid that says, I want to grow up to be an apostle and an evangelist. He's not a preacher boy. This is a man who was devoted to the destruction of God's church. He's a blasphemer that drove him to persecute the church. And he, indeed, because of that, was filled with the most insulting and reviling violence possible to stop the spread of what he thought had to be a plague of the true religion. What basis was there for Paul's appointment within God's kingdom? There was absolutely none at all. Because of his prodigal past. So the question is, how does a guy like this become the foremost preacher of the gospel in the known world? Well, I'm glad you asked this, Paul. He says, I'm glad that you want to know how this has come about. That me, who was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, has now become the most well-known proclaimer of this gospel of Jesus Christ To the ends of the earth. I'm glad you want to know. Here's how it happened. Mercy and grace. God's mercy and grace. Look there in verse 13. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. God has shown me mercy because he spared me from the right reward for my rebellious lifestyle. It didn't matter that he didn't know or that somehow he wasn't guilty because he didn't know all of God's law. He says, I was guilty for insubordination for God. It would have been just if he had condemned me to hell because I thought I was doing the right thing because I didn't understand his work. But listen, God showed me mercy. Mercy, I deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. I deserve death. But God gave me mercy. Isn't that a mighty message? Aren't you thankful for mercy? And the fact that God get, spares us from what we deserve? That that is a great blessing, but he goes on from there in verse 14 and he says on top of the mercy that God has given me and sparing me from what I rightly deserved when I was acting uh, in ignorance and unbelief. Now God has poured out upon me the grace of our Lord even more abundantly with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. God was gracious to Paul in the fact that he spared him from what he deserved. But number two, he gave him grace on top of the mercy. Grace is what? The children's way of memorizing grace is what? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. And here's what Paul says. God has now poured out, opened up the floodgates and overwhelmingly, abundantly filled up my life that was once blaspheming, persecuting, and violence with grace and mercy. Indeed, the Greek word that is used here is pleonato." Literally, it means God poured out grace into Paul's life in such a way that it super, super abounded. That's what he's saying. It overwhelmingly filled up what I was and where I was in and of myself. It overflowed his account. In other words, Paul Paul's basis here for a position of service in God's kingdom was, listen, it was not what he was and what he had done. It was that God, by his grace, had extended to him faith and love. And now he had strengthened Paul to serve within his kingdom. Indeed, God is the supplier of everything that we need for life and godliness. He gives us the faith to believe in Christ for salvation, and he fills us with the love of Christ so fully that it oozes from every poor with the statement Paul grounds himself in the truth of God's sole ability to transform sinking sinners into serving saints. Aren't you thankful that God would do that work? And I was sinking deep in sin, far from life's peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. It is his work. That has lifted Paul. It is his work that lifts us as well. Indeed, in place of Paul's blasphemies, persecutions, and violence, God has now given him grace, mercy, and love. Indeed, Paul never got over that, and neither should we. So I want to ask you this morning what did you look like last time you looked in the mirror? What did you look like last time you looked in the mirror? Well, I was overweight had a a slight overbite, you know, slight come over, some of you. The rest of us, we don't have enough to come over, so. Well, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too this, I'm too that. Maybe some of you woke up this morning and you looked and you said, I'm pretty perfect. What would you look like if I took all those bottles of creams and colors away? (laughs) Took away all those little pills and pokes that you take. What would you look like then? See, Paul wants us to see and understand who we are in and of ourselves. Who are we? We are sinners who need a Savior. He never got over Jesus Christ coming on that Damascus road and finding Paul the blasphemer, Paul the persecutor, Paul the insolent, violent man. He never got over that God took him and saved him and made him a son. Never got over it. And we shouldn't either when we stand before God's word and observe ourselves in the mirror of God's glorious reflection. We ought to see the reality that we are prodigals with a past that gives us no basis to stand before the living God, but only God's gifts of mercy and grace give us that ability to stand before him. And so as we serve God, we are to remind and rehearse within ourselves on a daily basis that God's grace and mercy is our only basis. It is our only plea for acceptance in his kingdom. Our prodigal past of sin has now been met with God's plentiful provision of forgiveness. Praise be to Jesus Christ. As we come this morning, we see our prodigal past. But secondly, we need to see in verses 15 through 17. The plentiful provision of God's forgiveness. We have seen the prodigal past of Saul of Tarsus, who is Paul the Apostle, and an apt summary of Saul before his conversion experience on Damascus Road was found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And there it says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Listen, if there's anybody that lives up to outward religion, Paul does it. Here he is, a Hebrew, a Pharisee, a rabbinically trained Jew. He had the history, the heritage, and the handiwork to earn his way to salvation, or so he thought. He had all the accreditations and accolades from all who knew him, but one thing he lacked and one thing he knew that he couldn't solve was how to have a right standing with God if he still had sin in his life. He had worked so hard to remove everything that was unrighteous, everything that was sinful, from his life that he had set himself apart. But he knew one thing, that indeed the Pharisee can never have anything to do. The righteous man within his culture can never have anything to do with common, ordinary, sinful folk. And so when Jesus walked in this world and he ate with people like Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, in Luke chapter 5, Verse 30, the Pharisees called him out and said, hey, why, why does your teacher eat with men like this? I mean, it was a scandal. Why would he eat with men like this when he was enjoying a meal there at the home of a Pharisee and one of the women... Of the night, possibly, an immoral woman, uh, an immoral woman, there in Luke chapter 7, verse 39, comes and breaks an alabaster bottle of perfume and starts anointing his feet and washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair. And Jesus is confronted, uh, Jesus' disciples are confronted. Why in the world does he keep company with sinners? Indeed, what was the charge against Jesus, the most serious charge that he faced when the Pharisees wanted to ostracize him? He's a friend of sinners. What a terrible person. Going for coffee at Zacchaeus' house. What's wrong with you? Going for dinner there at Levi's house. Getting caught talking to a woman at the well who had had five husbands and now had a live-in lover. How terrible. This guy can't be the Messiah. No way. Oh, yes. See, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the Pharisees of Paul's day, and the Pharisees of our, our day always miss the point of the gospel. They always think it's about how they have made themselves right before God when the reality of the story is how God makes us right to stand before him. And there in verse 15, we see exactly the way that God has done this. This is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, they didn't see the law as God's tutor to schoolmaster to show them uh their sin, so that they could then see God's Savior and surrender to Him. Instead, they put on their masks, they put on their suits, they made sure they were all dressed up and ready to go to church. Even though nothing would ever change in their hearts, they would never even hear the message of the sermon, they still came and sat just like they always had because that was a religious thing to do. They went Sunday by Sunday and they looked down their noses at everybody else who was who had sin in their life. They simply These people simply do what it takes to get another notch on the belt, another check in the box, another approval by the religious hierarchy. They want nothing to do with sinners. And truth be told, they don't actually think that they are sinners. Well, how are you going to get to heaven? Well, I've lived a good life. I'm a pretty good person, Pastor. You know, I'm not that bad. My good outweighs my bad. I doubt that. I can test my life each and every day. I never pass that test. And if you're honest with yourself, you never pass the test. And so we must ask ourselves, we, we must ask ourselves what can be done about the situation they want these people want nothing to do with sinners they don 't think that they are sinners, and they definitely don 't think that God should fellowship with the miserable sorts of sinners that Jesus Christ fellowships with and yet Paul says this very emphatic statement: Jesus Christ did what came into the world to save sinners let 's say that together. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let's say it one more time. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Who did Jesus Christ come into the world to save? Who? Who? And who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Good. I'm glad we've all got it straight now. So let's stop acting like we're high on our horse, like we don't ever have a problem in our life, like we have everything put together, and stop acting like we are pious Pharisees and start acting like we are sinners who have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, His glorious Savior. Let's take the message outside the doors and start showing people in the community because that's what every one of us and every one of them needs savior who comes and sits with the sinners but understand as we go through this time in spite of our prodigal past god has made plentiful provision at the cross of calvary through the person and work of jesus christ to redeem man from his sin. The fact of the matter is that God created us for a pure and perfect relationship with himself and yet Adam and Eve utterly destroyed that by failing to keep God's basic commands and because of their sin they were separated from that perfect paradise and that pure relationship with the Father and the curse of sin was pronounced on them and their children as a curse to death. God's plan though was to deal with the problem of our rebellious rebellious behavior by giving his only begotten son Jesus Christ who would be born of a virgin live a perfect pure life and keep all of the law perfectly in the likes in the ways that you and I can never do and then he would offer him as an atoning sacrifice as a perfect substitute there on the cross of Calvary he would be buried in the ground but three days later he would rise again in glorious victory over sin death and the grave so that all those who would believe in him by faith and submit their lives to him and repent of their sins might be saved by his grace and his mercy through his power. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we're on about. That is what renews a man. That is what restores a man. That is what makes a man right before God and gives us a commission to serve within this world. Let me ask you, are you a gospel man or woman today? Do you know that Jesus has he saved you? Paul that studied and that, that, that man who studied and was a devout Hebrew of the Hebrews who had been entirely consumed with stamping out the, the message of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. This is the man who is now consumed with fire to preach the gospel to the nations. I was carrying my papers Down the Damascus road. I was almost there into Damascus. And I was determined I was going to find every single Christian who was there that I could lay my hands on. And I was going to throw them in jail. I was going to bring them back and for all of those who might face death penalties, I was going to cast my lot against them. And I I was going to utterly destroy and wipe out the Christian church within that first century as soon as it got off the ground. But listen, as I came up to Damascus, something strange happened. All of a sudden a light appeared and it knocked me to the ground. And I couldn't even see. I couldn't do anything. In fact, the people who were with me had to pick pick me up and lead me by the hand because I couldn't even see where I was going or what was going to happen and they had to lead me into town and now i let was led into town and this man named ananias this man that was a part of the church indeed he had been redeemed set aside he comes and speaks to me a word and tells me listen you have been saved to do what to be a vessel of god to tell the nations of his glory and his grace oh not me I'm the chief of sinners. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. But then God changed me. And from that, Paul doesn't turn to hymn number six. Say, let's sing together hymn number six. No, this is the overflow of his soul. The immortal to the eternal, immortal, invisible God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. What a change and transformation. Let me ask you, if you don't walk out of here Sunday by Sunday with that kind of transformation, whose fault is it? Your fault or God's fault? Paul erupts with praise and worship just gushing from the depths of his being because he can't stop rehearsing and reminding himself of his prodigal past, of God's plentiful provision of forgiveness at Calvary and the great work of salvation that he has benefited from. Listen, we need to be the same as Paul. We need to be people that never get over being saved. We need to be people like John Newton, that old wild drunken sailor, the slave trader who was later to be redeemed and become a pastor. You may know him better because he's the man who wrote the words to Amazing Grace. We need to be people like John Newton who have a placard over his mantle in a study that read Deuteronomy 15, 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. You need a mark in your life somewhere To remind you every moment of the day. I was a slave to sin. I was separated uh, separated from God. And destined for hell. But God snatched me out of that. And saved my soul. What a great God. He also wrote his own epitaph. And here's what he had to say about himself. John Newton. Clerk. Once an infidel. And libertine a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith He had long labored to destroy. Let me ask you, whether you've tried to destroy God's work in this world through your outward actions, or whether you have just chosen to reject and revile His commands, you are still a sinner in need of a Savior. question for you this morning is, do you know Jesus Christ? And do you know the salvation that He has brought through the work He did at Calvary? If you repent of your sins and you place your faith in His hands and you surrender fully to Him, I can give you assurance today, He will save your soul. But you must first admit and accept and take to heart that statement. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of all. Father, as we close today, let us see the seriousness of our I call just as I am This morning, that is a great message and a a great uh, Savior. And I just am amazed. You know, John Newton never got over how great his sin was, but how he had found a greater Savior. Paul never got over how great his sin was, but the fact that he had found a greater Savior. You and I should never get over how great our sin is, but how much better and greater is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We go out this morning. We pray that you'll return. Uh, We do have a business meeting tonight, uh, immediately following for those who signed up. Uh, We have new members class at Discover ABC, so please make sure to go to that. Uh, If there's anything you need this week, please let us know. Uh, Praying for you. I love you. Uh, Once again, forgive me for not shaking your hand and talking too close to you this morning, uh, but... Pray that you would be well and be blessed as you go out this week. Let us close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you in this time. Lord, we ask now that you would lead us and guide us, that you would direct our thoughts and our steps. Lord, that, Father, uh, we would always have on our hearts, Father, the greatness of our sin, but the even greater grace and mercy that we have found flowing from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, may you lead us and guide us now. Father, may we be effective.